The Tiger Tamer Who Went to Sea from History Extra charts the life of a remarkable Victorian, Britain's original long-distance wheelbarrow pedestrian. New episodes are out every Thursday or listen to the whole series immediately ad-free by subscribing to History Extra Plus on Apple Podcasts or listening on historyextra.com. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. Earn up to 3% daily cashback on every purchase every day. Then grow it at 4.50% annual percentage yield when you open a savings account with Apple Card. Visit apple.co forward slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card subject to credit approval. Savings available to Apple Card owners subject to eligibility. Savings accounts provided by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, member FDIC. Terms apply. Why is it that with sparkling water, I'm always playing guessing games with what flavor I'm drinking? Is it citrus? Is it aluminum can flavored? Mm, not sure. Sparkling ice, though, they really mean flavor. Like in-your-face flavor. Orange mango, black raspberry. Don't even get me started on the strawberry lemonade. Kiwi Strawberry slid right into my taste buds DMs last night and let them know who's boss. No subtleties there and no sugar either. But it does have vitamins and antioxidants. Find sparkling ice at a major grocery store or club retailer near you. Sparkling ice. Anything but subtle. This episode is brought to you by Viore. Give the active people in your life something they'll truly appreciate. Performance apparel from Viore. Whether they're into running, surfing, hiking, or even just casual walks around the block, there's something for everyone. And if you're not sure what to gift them, you can't go wrong with something from Viore's Dream Knit Collection. It's the perfect gift and so comfortable. Get 20% off your first purchase today at Viore. V-U-O-R-I dot com slash Spotify. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm back in the Hebberden coin room at the Ashmolean Museum in Oxford. And I'm holding in my hand one of the most famous and fascinating coins in the history of the world. The last coin we discussed celebrated Julius Caesar. This one celebrates his murder. Welcome to episode 5 of Caesar, Death of a Dictator. In this episode, we'll be exploring how the conspirators' plans unravelled, propelling Rome once again into a bitter civil war. As before, I've been joined by Volker Heuschert, one of the Ashmolean's experts on ancient coins. He's about to talk me through an astonishing remnant of this turbulent age. This is the Eid Mar Denarius of Brutus. And uh, if you look at it, the first thing which strikes you is that we have Brutus's own portrait on the obverse, which is absolutely amazing given the fact that when Caesar did it, it was controversial. This is only two years later. This coin was issued uh, about 42 BC. So this is only two years after Caesar set the precedent. But it looks, as far as Roman coins is concerned, once Caesar did it before his assassination, that was it. The dam was broken and it could not be Put back. I mean, these coins would have been given mostly to Brutus' soldiers, and uh, he might have considered it, it useful if, could, if they could see his portrait, because he, he might have been personally known to him. 
but he is not wearing a, a laurel wreath or anything. It's just his image. Yeah, so once Caesar did it, everyone had to do it. And then on, on the reverse, we have the iconic image of the Peleus, the Cap of Liberty, which was given to slaves when they were set free, manumitted. And then we have two daggers referring to the assassination of Caesar in the Senate building. And the two daggers, in terms of design, yeah, they, they, they flank the cap of, of liberty. And so, so they are aesthetically pro producing a, a, a rounded design. But it might also be that the first dagger refers to the deeds of Brutus's ancestors. And this is his, his own deed. Or one might refer to Brutus, the other to Cassius, as, as the two most prominent of the conspirators. Also. And then we have the inscription, Eid Mar, re referring to the Ides of March when Caesar was assassinated. Yeah, so this reverse image or combined or this coin probably represents the, the most famous of, of all ancient coin designs, certainly from, from the Roman side. The, the message is sort of straight in your face. I don't know how many people would have understood that the Cup of Liberty is, represents the liberation of the state from the tyranny of Caesar. But on the whole, the message on that coin is not at all subtle. It's not at all subtle. It's, it's really interesting that they chose to show the daggers and almost revel in the fact that they'd murdered Caesar. Do you think this is... Is it a threat? Is it a defence of their position? Is it a way of trying to remind people who they are and what they saved Rome from? Yeah, it's a rallying cry for the cause you know, of liberty and for, for Brutus and for against tyranny. And the image of Brutus, I mean, unlike the Caesar coin, he does look a bit more impressive. Do you think this is a realistic picture of Brutus or do you think he's, again, want to look a bit more like one of these kingly figures? I mean, looking like a Hellenistic king would be out of the question for Brutus too. We have to imagine Brutus would have been younger than Caesar, and we probably see that reflected there. I think for him it would have mattered to be recognizable by his troops. So I would suspect this to be a vaguely accurate portrait of him. Do you think this coin represents the, the breakdown of the plan of the conspirators? Because rather than... This is not a conciliatory coin, is it? This is not a coin seeking to build bridges. This is a coin saying, we're at war, isn't it? Yes. Yes, absolutely. There's no... <laughs> no this is straight in your face. <laughs> this is daggers drawn, isn't it, at this point? A coin like that can only be produced by people who are on one side of the fight. Yeah, well, one civil war has now broken out and there are clearly two camps and uh, uh, they're having it out in, an, uh, in, in, in a big fight as to who is going to, to rule the republic. So no, directly afterwards when it was unsure what was going to happen, a coin type like that would not have been feasible because it would have offended the successors of Caesar and, and his soldiers and, and so on. And that would have been not a good idea. This episode is brought to you by ZipRecruiter. Daylight saving time is once again upon us, as is the debate about whether it's truly needed or not. But if you're hiring, it really doesn't matter. Because even though it may feel as if your day is longer, it won't help you find qualified candidates any sooner. 
There's only one way to do that. ZipRecruiter. Once you post your job, ZipRecruiter sends it to 100 plus job sites and then uses smart technology to find people with the skills and experience to match the position. So spring forward with ZipRecruiter. Four out of five employers get a quality candidate within the first day. Try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com extra. That's ZipRecruiter.com extra. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. Earn up to 3% daily cashback on every purchase every day. Then grow it at 4.50% annual percentage yield when you open a savings account with Apple Card. Visit apple.co forward slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card subject to credit approval. Savings available to Apple Card owners subject to eligibility. Savings accounts provided by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, member FDIC. Terms apply. Whether you're making a delicious family meal or a post-workout snack, choose the farm-fresh taste of Eggland's Best Eggs. Only Eggland's best hens are fed their proprietary all-vegetarian feed. That's what makes their eggs more nutritious. With 10 times more vitamin E, 25% less saturated fat, and 6 times more vitamin D compared to ordinary eggs. Eggland's Best. Better taste, better nutrition, better eggs. Visit egglandsbest.com to learn more. By the time the Ides of March coin had been minted, in 42 BC, Rome was once again divided. A civil war was raging between Caesar's supporters and his assassins. And by the end of it, one side would be utterly vanquished. This had not been the plan two years earlier. In 44 BC, the conspirators had hoped to preserve the Republic and limit the killing to a single man. But events had swiftly overtaken them. So let's now return to the Ides of March and hear from one of our regular experts, Professor Barry Strauss, author of The Death of Caesar. I asked him whether the conspirators had had a plan for what would happen after they'd killed Rome's dictator. They had a plan, but it wasn't enough of a plan. The plan, first of all, they were going to address the senators and get them on their side. Secondly, they were going to march through the streets of Rome, brandishing their daggers, and they were going to go up to the citadel, the Capitoline Hill, in a way, the center of Rome, protected by Decimus Brutus's gladiators, who weren't there for nothing. And there, protected on the citadel, they were going to call for all true Romans to join them up there. They knew that Lepidus had a legion outside the gates of the city, and they were concerned for their own security. And there they wanted to call uh, supporters to their side to say, look, we are not opposed to Rome. We're not going on a killing spree. We only killed the one man who is a danger to Rome. We only killed the dictator, Caesar. But we want everything else to go back to normal. And we want peace. We don't want to start the civil war. And we want to negotiate this. We want to speak to the people of Rome. So that was the plan. Lepidus, who Barry just mentioned, was a Roman general and statesman and a close ally of Julius Caesar. The conspirators were well aware of the dangers that he and his soldiers represented to their plans. But it's here, in Barry's view, that they made their biggest mistake. There were large numbers of soldiers who'd fought for Caesar in and around Rome. And winning these veterans over was essential to preserving the peace. The conspirators needed to win these folks over. And the way to win these folks over was pretty crude. The way to win these folks over was to say, we're going to give you a raise. 
They had to up the ante, and that they didn't do. Why didn't they do it? Well, partly because they didn't have the money, partly because they would have to um, dip into their own pockets or raise taxes to find the money to do it. That was a fatal error on their part, and also partly because they were old-fashioned Republicans who thought these soldiers should do it for the Republic and be grateful for what they had done. This was a huge mistake, in my opinion, the fundamental mistake that they make. Brutus goes out and addresses the Roman people, and he says, we're going to leave things as they were. Soldiers, you've all been given generous settlements by Caesar. You've gotten monetary rewards, and you're going to get land, and we're not going to change any of that. That wasn't good enough. They had to give these soldiers more. The soldiers were not happy that their chief had been killed and weren't certain what their own future would be in the Republic. That being said, it it needs to be added that there certainly was popular support in Rome. There was popular opposition in Rome to Caesar. Caesar had been a very popular figure. He'd been a popularist. He'd been a friend of the Roman people. But there were many in the Roman public who looked askance at what Caesar had done in the last six months of his life. They didn't appreciate the fact that Caesar had unofficial abolished elections. They didn't like the fact that Caesar's mistress, the queen of Egypt, was practically in the city of Rome, and they took the republic seriously, and they were concerned about what Caesar was done. He was building his own new forum dedicated to himself next to the Roman forum. He had accepted unprecedented honors from the Senate, including being worshipped as a god. A cult of Julius Caesar was supposed to be set up. We mustn't underestimate the political sophistication of the Roman people and the degree to which they themselves were invested in the Republic and might have been willing to move on from the assassination with sufficient incentives. But the problem was the soldiers and the problem was the incentives and the problem was that Caesar's partisans could strike back. And they did, of course. And according to Professor Philip Freeman of Pepperdine University, the conspirators had failed to judge the public mood. Even after the assassination, they took it for granted that the common people would just fall in line. That was the role of the common people, was to back the nobility. And the common people were just not going to do that anymore. They, they didn't want to go back to the ruling families running everything, and them, the common people, getting the scraps. They wanted a new sort of government. And so I think that if the conspirators had been a little more populist, perhaps they could have succeeded. But however disgruntled Caesar's veterans and the citizens of Rome might have been, they still needed a leader to take on the conspirators and their supporters. And here we need to reintroduce Mark Antony, Caesar's powerful ally, who the assassins had chosen to spare on the Ides of March. Mark Antony is a fascinating character. He was there at the assassination. He had actually gone to the Senate House with Caesar. He was led outside deliberately, uh, you know, to to keep him away. So he he goes in, he sees Caesar lying there dead, stabbed by all the senators. What Antony does is he, he leaves, and then he begins to think about, what do I do now? What would he do now? Mark Antony was a man who undoubtedly had the popular touch so it was essential for the conspirators that he did not move against them. And initially, at least, the signs were good, as Barry Strauss describes. In the few days after the assassination, Antony is one of the people who agrees to a compromise. The Senate votes 
to do two things. First of all, not to change any of the decisions that Caesar took about who will be holding public office in the next few years, because some of the conspirators themselves were beneficiaries of this. Decimus Brutus had been named by Caesar to be governor of Cisalpine Gaul, Italian Gaul. He wanted to keep that position. The second thing that they do is they vote in an amnesty for the conspirators. That's a big deal. It's a very big deal that they vote in this amnesty. And Antony and Lepidus agree to this amnesty. And within a few days of the assassination, there's a love fest. There's a series of dinners. The conspirators come down from the Capitoline Hill. They embrace their opponents. And everything is hunky-dory, or so it seems. The problem, A, is the conspirators... I think have made a tremendous mistake in not giving Caesar's soldiers a raise and not giving them a stake in the new order. And B, the public funeral. The public funeral of Caesar that is now going to take place. And Antony decides that he is going to turn this public funeral into a spectacle against the conspirators. I think he's getting a lot of his ideas from his wife at the time, who is a woman named Fulvia. Fulvia is another political wife. She is the widow of a popularist politician named Clodius, who had been assassinated on the Appian Way by a team of gladiators. And his funeral had been turned into a riot, a riot that ended up burning down the Senate House. And Fulvia, uh, we have to suspect, was whispering in Antony's ear and saying, Antony, you can turn this around. Turn Caesar's funeral into a spectacle. Some of the conspirators did not want to give Caesar a public funeral. And I think it was a mistake to agree to give him a public funeral. In Shakespeare's Julius Caesar, the most memorable episode other than the assassination itself, is the dictator's funeral and Mark Antony's excoriating oration. And in reality too, this was a decisive moment in the path of Roman history, even if the words were not quite as Shakespeare recorded them. That is the event that really drives the conspirators out of Rome, because Antony runs this beautifully. He just really turns this into a... a festival of hatred towards the assassins. Now, he does not give the speech that Shakespeare assigns to him, alas. We're not really sure what he said, but he's got the corpse on the podium, on the rostra, and he has a wax model of Caesar that revolves. It's a wax model that shows the wounds that the assassins have inflicted on him. There's some reason to suspect that he has seated the crowd with people who would be willing to incite a riot, with agent provocateur. The other thing that Antony does is that he leads the crowd in a series of cheers and counter cheers as if this were a football match. He incites the crowd against the assassins. He reads a list of what Caesar has done on behalf of the Roman people. In a Roman funeral, in the funeral of a noble, there is a procession in which the wax masks of the noble ancestors, and Caesar's family had many such ancestors, are carried in display. And finally, an actor wearing a mask of Caesar's face, dressed like Caesar, and meant to walk like Caesar, to imitate Caesar, is present. This is a spectacle that does a fantastic job in inciting the crowd. And the result is a riot. 
It's a riot that members of the crowd take benches from the area and they burn them. They turn on any of the conspirators they can find. Most of them have wisely kept away. Uh, They take Caesar's corpse, which was supposed to have been brought outside the sacred boundary of the city of Rome and cremated on the field of Mars. And they instead, they cremated then and there at the edge of the forum. And then they go through the city trying to hunt down the conspirators. They famously choose the wrong man. Instead of killing Cinna the conspirator, they kill Cinna the poet uh, who was innocent. And the conspirators who are left get the message and they now leave Rome. So things have gone really wrong and Antony is now in the saddle. The stage was set for yet another civil war with Caesar's assassins on one side and his former supporters on the other. The people of Rome had turned against Brutus, Cassius and their allies, but their cause was far from lost. Brutus and Cassius fled to the east of the empire, where they built up an army, all the while knowing that they retained significant support among the Roman political elite, if not the wider population of the city. Meanwhile, Mark Antony sought to consolidate his position as leader of the pro-Caesar faction. But all the while, a young rival was growing in power. Gaius Octavius, known today as Octavian. He was Caesar's great-nephew, and the man who the dictator had been grooming as his eventual successor. Crucially, he was named as Caesar's heir in his will, affording him a legitimacy none of the other contenders could match. But when Caesar was killed... Octavian was still a teenager, far younger than his more experienced rivals. The conspirators in Antony underestimate Octavian because he's a kid, because he's 18. Uh, But this was a fatal mistake. He is a political genius and utterly ruthless. And what the conspirators had failed to do, he does. He offers the soldiers a raise. On top of that, Mark Antony had made a mistake. He had treated the soldiers with contempt. He had behaved like a martinet and had imposed too great a military discipline. And Octavian went to the soldiers. He went to Caesar's old supporters and he said, I'm the guy. I'm the heir. You should believe in me. It doesn't matter that I'm 18. I can really win this for you. Now, this is where it all gets rather complicated because although Octavian was seeking to establish himself as Caesar's heir, his first battle was not against Caesar's assassins, but with the formidable Mark Antony, who was also in the pro-Caesar camp. In 43 BC, at Mutina in the province of Cisalpine Gaul, Octavian teamed up with the forces of Rome's two consuls to defeat Antony, who himself had been besieging the third leading assassin, Decimus. Octavian's status was significantly strengthened by this, especially as, conveniently, both consuls died on the expedition against Antony. But though Antony had been defeated, he escaped to fight another day, and to continue his battle with Decimus. This time, the luck was on Antony's side. Decimus's troops began to defect, and the assassin was forced to flee. Captured by Antony's men, Decimus was beheaded. Of the three ringleaders in the assassination plot, only two now remained. And then, in another twist in the tale, Octavian and Mark Antony decided to join forces. 
They go back to Italy and they decide to form a conspiracy, the so-called Second Triumvirate, along with Lepidus, to control the Roman state. The Senate is horrified. The Senate wants to resist, but Octavian surrounds the Senate with troops. One of his lieutenants goes to the Senate house and says, you don't like what Octavian is proposing? Well, maybe you like this. And he pulls out a sword. They then declare war on their political enemies and say that they need to turn over all their money to them at the expense of their lives. Most of these men flee Italy. They go to the east to Brutus and Cassius, but a few of them are caught and killed, uh, most famously Cicero, who is assassinated before he can leave Italy. He, too, is beheaded, and his head and his hands are displayed in the Roman Forum. The Second Triumvirate had control of Italy, but Brutus and Cassius were far from defeated. Brutus and Cassius do a really good job of building a new military force. They have a strong army. Cassius, as I said, is an excellent general, one of Rome's best, I think a better general than Antony, in my opinion. And they also control the seas. They have a navy. The forces of Antony and Octavian, who've now joined forces, don't have a navy. And they had something else in their favor, too. They have the political and the moral high ground. They're supporting the defenders of the Republic. Antony and Octavian's armies journeyed east to meet the assassins head-on. In the autumn of 42 BC, the two sides met in what's now northeastern Greece, in a battle that would determine the future of the Roman Empire. And it was a battle that could have gone either way. Octavian and Antony raise an army as well. They go to the east to fight them. As I said, they don't have a navy. And the Republicans under Brutus and Cassius are capable of cutting off the supplies of Octavian and Antony. But Antony cleverly does an end run on land around the enemies. And the enemies only see that he's trying to take them from the flank when it's rather late in the day. So they launch a counterattack. The counterattack is completely successful in defeating the troops of Octavian. Octavian himself was sick that day, and he had to run for his life. They run into more trouble against Antony, but they're not defeated. Unfortunately, and this is a really unfortunate thing that happens, Cassius makes a mistake. Cassius thinks that the game is lost. He thinks that Octavian has defeated Brutus and that the army, his army has been defeated. And so Cassius decides to commit suicide rather than be captured by the enemy. Huge mistake. The battle's not decisive in tactical terms because the army of the conspirators, they call themselves the liberators now, the army of the liberators is still intact. Their only good general, Cassius, is dead. And they're now in the hands of Brutus. And Brutus had many things going for him, but being a great general is not one of them. He should have avoided fighting, but instead he gives in to the hotheads and he agrees to fight another battle. And this time, Antony has no trouble outgeneraling Brutus and he defeats the armies of Brutus and Cassius. And Brutus himself now has to commit suicide rather than be captured. And many of the leading conspirators are killed at this battle as well. Decimus, Cassius and Brutus were dead. The civil war was lost, and the outcome of Caesar's assassination would be decided not by his killers, but by those who revered him. Next time, in the final episode of Caesar, Death of a Dictator, we'll discover how Rome was once again plunged into civil war before a final victor could emerge. 
Thanks to my experts for this episode, Professor Philip Freeman of Pepperdine University, Professor Barry Strauss of Cornell University, and Dr. Falker Hoyshirt of the Ashmolean Museum. This podcast was written and presented by me, Rob Attar, with additional checks by Rob Blackmore and our podcast editor, Ellie Cawthorn. The producer was Jack Bateman. <laughs>